Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome back to The Game Podcast. I am Hugh Wisencroft alongside Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark. Um, gentlemen, where should we begin? So much went on this weekend. Do we really want to talk about football first? I, I think not, because what Antonio Conte had to say this weekend trumped just about everything. Calling his players selfish, saying Tottenham can change the manager, but the situation cannot change. It was a stinging criticism, at least perceived to be a stinging criticism, of the club's culture it came after they threw away a two goal lead with 13 minutes left against relegation threatened Southampton now if you've missed it have a quick listen to his press conference straight after the match I don't know because they are used here don't play for something important they don't play uh, they don't want to play under pressure they don't want to play under stress it's easy in this way Tottenham story is this 20 years that there is the owner and never won something but why only for the, the fault is only for the club or for the every manager that stay uh, here. And uh, I have seen uh, the manager that Tottenham had. You risk to disrupt the figure of the manager and to protect the other situation in every moment. Uh, until now, I try to hide the situation. But now, no. Because I repeat, I don't want to see what I have seen today. Because this is unacceptable. Also for the respect for the fans. They follow us, pay the tickets, and to see the team another time. To have this type of performance, for me, I repeat, this is unacceptable. So absolutely incredible, totally remarkable uh, from Antonio Conte. Um, one of our very own, Tom Allnut, was in the room listening to that press conference. Tom Clark here spoke to him a little bit earlier on and asked him what it was like being there. Yeah, I mean, it was it was astonishing, really. I mean, I guess when you do these press conferences in the written press, you always get a little bit of a flavour of what you might be about to hear because usually managers um, speak to the radios and, and the television first. And, and although they're much shorter interviews, you sometimes get a sort of a, an idea as to what might be coming. Um, so we were sort of anticipating something a little bit different because we'd heard Antonio Conte uh, sort of expressed some some distaste for his interviews with the radios, but he, he basically sort of stormed in. Um, and the first question was was a pretty innocuous one, really. It was, you know, what did you think of the penalty decision? And it was quite clear that within about six words, you know, he kind of said, yeah, it wasn't a penalty, but, you know, I, I, that's not what I want to talk about, you know. And, and then he just went off and and, and just kept speaking. And, and, that, and it was a 10-minute press conference. There were four questions 
Um, but to be honest, the questions were were completely irrelevant. I mean, he just wanted to to say what he wanted to say. Um, and I mean, you know, we've seen this before, I guess, from Conte uh, at Spurs and also in his career. But um, to be there and for him to sort of you know be shouting, gesticulating, I get you know at the end he sort of thought was this a was this kind of calculated? Was it a political move? Had he sort of did this for effect? But actually, when you were sitting there, I think in the room, it was it was very clear that this was very. Uh, very genuine, you know. This was this was very real, kind of emotion, very real frustration pouring out. Um, and he, and even though I think there is some politics definitely here, this was this was absolutely Antonio Conte in its uh, in its purest form. The the situation at Tottenham has now become all about Conte, which which is strange because we've discussed on the podcast before how they're not having a terrible season. You know, they're they're still they're still fourth in the table, Champions League qualification still very much in reach. What 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 was the game like? You know, because it's so easy to forget what the performance was like. Obviously, frustration at having um, given away a lead. But what was the actual performance like? Did it feel like the this kind of rant, this kind of mood matched up on the pitch as well? Watching the players. No, I mean I think it's an interesting point because I, I you know, it felt like this could have been so different. You know, Spurs were were three one up. Um, you know, they were heading for third in the table. They were going to spend the whole of the international break third because United weren't going to play again. They played pretty well, you know. I mean, Pedro Porro scored a good goal. Uh, I think he played his best game, ironically. Obviously, Kane scored. Um, and, you know, there was a little bit of lapse of concentration after half. They gave away a goal almost straight away after the after the interval. But they were very much the better team here, you know. And, and it was they were creating chances. They could have scored a few more. It, it felt very much like, a, OK, this is a good performance against, you know, a team that bottomed the table. Um and then obviously in, in the space of 12 minutes, everything unraveled, you know, and I think that's why, um, you know, Conte, I think that was almost the source of frustration that he saw this should have been a victory. This was a, this was a match that they should have had in the palm of their hand and somehow they, they gave it away. Now, obviously you've written this morning uh, with Gary Jacob that Conte's had some talks with the Tottenham board to kind of clarify his comments. What's your understanding of the situation as it stands? I mean, I think... You know, after the AC Milan, um, after they went out in the Champions League to AC Milan, the feeling was very much, I think, you know, this is this now feels like it's uh, coming to an end point very quickly. Um, but I think that that win over Forest, where they played pretty well, it was quite a comfortable victory. And then you combine that with with Manchester United and Liverpool both dropping points that weekend, and suddenly you think, well, actually, fourth place is very much achievable still for Spurs, you know. And I think probably. You know, the, the feeling of the club shifted a little bit where they thought, OK, you know, we can ride this out now until the end of the season. Uh, we wait until the summer. The sensible thing now to do is to kind of use the next few weeks to prepare, to draw up a shortlist. They they, they have begun discussing kind of potential candidates. Um, so you get to a situation at the end of the season where you're not, you know, caught unawares. And, you know, and that, that seemed fairly logical. You know, this team could keep performing under Conte if the harmony could kind of be, be retained for a few weeks more, then that would have been a good plan. I think in a space of 12 minutes against Southampton, suddenly, you know, at a 10 minute press conference, everything suddenly feels a bit different now. And, and the, uh, and the board, I think, uh, you know, they're, they're at a crossroads that, you know, this international break now, they've got two weeks where obviously it's a, it's a, it's a possible uh, convenient time to make a change equally, you know, you have to, the decision is are Spurs more likely to be fourth with Conte for the last 10 games, or are they more likely to be fourth under, Possibly Ryan Mason, you know, the sort of interim coach until the end of the season, because I think ultimately appointing someone else, you know, for the space of a couple of months could be complicated, you know, in part because 
if they're not available, if they are available, then maybe it could be difficult to persuade um, a coach to come in and and take over such a short period of time when ultimately there's not that much to be gained and there's quite a lot to be lost. So um, I think, you know, my understanding is that, you know, as you said, Conte has, has tried to clarify his comments. He wants to make sure that he he was uh, he was understood not to be kind of criticising the board. He was criticising the players. Um, I know that Conte feels hugely grateful to to members of the Tottenham hierarchy for how they treated him during the last few months. When you know, as we know, he lost three of his very close football friends. He had a had a very big operation, and he does feel you know genuine gratitude to the to the club and to to members of the the hierarchy of Spurs for how they handled that. I don't think he wants to kind of burn all those relations with them. But quite clearly, he's he's quite happy now to kind of burn his relations with with the players and also with the fans. We have to remember, he was only a week ago when he was also criticising the fans at Spurs. And, you know, if you kind of think that a manager's, uh, you know, rule number one for a manager is not to criticise the players, not to criticise the fans in public. And Conte's done that now in a space of a couple of weeks. So this was definitely a manager, I think, who who knows he's on his way out and does success uh, being brought forward. That's the uh, considered correspondence take now for the fun. Got to make a prediction. One word, yes or no. Will he be the manager at, by the end of the season? <laughs> I mean, it's really difficult because Spurs have just been have made me look stupid all season. You know, you sort of think <laughs> they're turning a corner one week and then they're playing terribly the next. You know, and you think Conte is doing a great job and then the next week he's doing a terrible job. It's just you know an absolute nightmare team to cover for the last few months. I I, I think Spurs would like to continue with Conte, if, if at all possible, if they can get any indication from the players and from him himself that, that they can kind of keep going for the final 10 games. I think they will want to stick to plan A, which is which is to avoid that kind of, you know, humiliating process they had last time where they were searching very much in public for a, for a replacement for uh, Jose Mourinho. Um, they want to be more considered and calculated this time, you know, and I think that that is desperately what they want to do. Ultimately, it would depend, I think, on the dressing room. It would depend on Conte's mindset. Um, but I think if they can, they will want to kind of keep him in place for Everton and, and, and ride this out, hope for the best. Tom, you've got a future as a politician. Well, fantastic answer. Thank you very much for your time. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Pleasure. So our thanks to Tom Olnap, Tom Clark, thank you very much for conducting duties. Um, Wow. Well, it was it was incredible. Let's go back, uh, if we can, to to what Antonio Conte had to say, because for me, I, I took it maybe more of a direct criticism of his players than anything else. I think it was maybe lost in in translation, if you like, the fact that so many people were saying he was trying to criticise the club. I think what he was trying to say is the owners have been here for a long time. They still haven't won anything. You can't keep blaming them. There's been so many managers. There's been so much change. They've tried just about everything. I'm here now. At some point, you guys, and I think he's probably saying the journalists, but also the fans, are going to have to blame the players and stop asking about my future or what sign-ins we need and take a look at them out there today because they need to take responsibility. I thought it was an old-fashioned lay the gauntlet down to your players to respond to do something in the future. I, you know, maybe I'm reading something totally different to everyone else because there were there was also talk about sort of, you know, finishing 7th or 8th and, and that sort of stuff, and, and I'm not used to that. So, you know, maybe I'm just trying to find some relief in what uh, Antonio had to say. But it, it was remarkable, and to be honest, he's famous for these outbursts elsewhere in his football management career. He just hasn't done it as much here. So I was all for it, to be perfectly honest, and I'm all for blaming the players. You know, you can't blame the manager after that. Come on, can you? 
Look, the players definitely deserve some criticism, but um, there's some serious contradictions in what he was saying as well. I mean, if if he's not blaming the club, who signed the players? Uh, who hired him? Who's coaching the players? Like, none, none of this is black and white. Um, but he does have a point, and he has a, a broader point about Spurs. Even if you don't think he's making that point directly, he is sort of indirectly, clearly, that Spurs have uh, not reached their potential for a long, long time now. Um, and there is a kind of... Is there a malaise? Do we think there's a malaise there? Do we think that there's something, like, culturally wrong at Tottenham? I think he was alluding to that as well, absolutely. Um, and I think the players probably are... Um, suffering from that I mean it's not it's that's not all the fault of the players it's not all the fault of the manager it generally does come from the top I think and I think the thing is when when Conte arrives at a club he spent look, he spent 150 million pounds it's not him that's spending it but he's, his squad has been bolstered with I think 10 additions at a cost of 150 million pounds usually he's starting from a higher base and he thinks that that's going to he believes and hopes that that's going to push him towards a position where he can challenge for something better than scraping fourth in, in the Premier League. Uh, but that is not the case at Tottenham Hotspur. And I think he's kind of... He's known it for a long time and he's just... A lot of people think that this was... Uh, I've said that this was him saying, I want to be sacked now. I don't think he wants to be sacked. I think he wouldn't care now if he's sacked. And he's just... He's prepared to give give both barrels and see what comes hopefully get a reaction and if the reaction is his dismissal so be it but he, he needs a reaction because he's not satisfied with mediocrity Hugh obviously I bow down to your experience in these matters of interviewing managers and things no I mean that genuinely I was, I'm not, I, for once I wasn't being sarcastic <laughs> uh, you know and interesting to hear you say that you may think, think that may be a bit of a lost in translation but speaking to Tom earlier and he wrote it in his piece today, kind of said it felt both genuine but also a little bit rehearsed. And I do think a little bit of that came across to me when I was reading about it, listening to it back, that this felt like a man giving out all the chat but trying to build a kind of narrative, prep, prepping for that kind of departure at the end where Tottenham fans will almost certainly blame him and not like him, but he will then be able to say, well, it, I did my best with what I could, what I had, mm. nothing more I could be done. Because you know Tony Cascarino writes this morning um, in the Times as well. You you can say, for once, we've got to stop talking about me, but when you rant like that, you're ensuring all we're going to do is talk about you. Like he's not; he's an intelligent man. Managers we've seen it over the years always do this kind of thing, and often do it deliberately. So Alex Ferguson was the master of it, wasn't he, in terms of constructing and steering people into what he wanted them to talk about. But like he's he's that we're only going to talk about him when he talks like this. So he can say, "Oh, it's time to stop talking about me. We need to talk about this club and the problems." Blah, blah, blah. He knows he's not daft. Surely he knows they're only we're only going to be sat talking about him. Mm, but but he has had one of these before where we all thought I can't remember what what game it was, but he had a huge rant afterwards, pointing fingers left, right, and centre, and we all thought oh, he doesn't want to be there. This is it. I'm sure I had a big go at him, you know, for saying that he needs to commit to the club if he wants to go out and, and rant and rave and shout like this. But um, in terms of it feeling rehearsed, I don't think it, it's that. I think he said he said it himself. The reason it sounded probably rehearsed is that he's probably been thinking it for quite a long time. It's, <coughs> it's a thought that was very clear in his mind because he said, I've tried to hide it. I've tried my best not to mention it. 
Um, but also, I think Conte, strangely, because because of the previous rant that he had, um, we, where we all thought it was kind of apocalyptic, and then the next press conference, he kind of sits down with a smile on his face, and he's like, I don't know what you're all getting so worked up about. You know, it was, I was just kind of emotional after the game. So it wouldn't surprise me. But that's it, what it, I mean. It, he, it's all about... That is all about him, isn't it, then? That, 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 yeah. The two things you've put there, it, it's perfectly true, but it is then all about him. Like, Tottenham's whole season has now become all about Antonio Conte. And the strange thing is, as I discussed with Tom earlier, that they're, they're still fourth. Like, they're still fourth. We keep talking about this with Tottenham. They keep picking up results. Some of the teams around them, Newcastle had a dip in form, of course. Champions League is still well within reach in terms of qualifying which ultimately with the way Arsenal are performing and Manchester United improving is about as good as they could hope for so that that's the strange thing one thing I wanted to quickly ask Gregor because I was talking to Tony Cascarino about it yesterday he was quite strident in his view that you know this kind of thing will just divide a dressing room when they've got 10 games left he he was making the point that you know play managers can dig out players all the time and it happens in a dressing room half time rollickings etc but when you go for a blanket these players type thing that's a nightmare because you're sat in the dressing room or reading it after or watching it on your phone going does he mean me i thought i was all right like surely he doesn't mean me it, it, like would you agree with tony on that yeah and i mean no no player likes being dug out in public like that but I don't know. I, my sort of gut feeling is that this group of players, it's been, you know, there, yes, there've been additions to them, but a core of them, it's been the same story for a long time, and really they, they've got to deal with it. They've got to deal with this uh, because it's true. Um, absolutely, they won't like it, and they like there was questions. Well, will he have been saying that in the changing room after the game? I'm pretty sure he would have. Although mm. Harry Winks came out and said that he doesn't say much after most games. Like, which is, which is surprising. Maybe mm. maybe he saves his, he saves it for a Monday or whatever. But mm. I'm pretty sure Conte, Antonio Conte tells the players what he thinks of them. Yeah. Um. So I don't think this will be news to them. My my only issue is it. I think there's a, there's a big psychology to this, and it's all based on the fact that if Antonio Conte had four years left on his deal, what he said this weekend would be totally different in totally different context. Because I think it does, you know, it, it's it's not necessarily saying I want to leave. It's not necessarily saying I want all these players to leave. But it is kind of like, well, what response do you want from a group of players that at this point in time think you're leaving at the end of the season? So it's like, if, I, if I'm looking around the changing room, I'm like, oh, it's massively dug us out here. What do we do on Monday? Do we go and knock on the manager's door and say, you were right? Or do we go back and have a big reaction in training? All right, it's the international break. But you know what I mean? Next time we're in. Um, do we have that big reaction as a group, refocus, say the manager's right, we've not been good enough, take a look at ourselves during this period, you know, whatever the Tottenham WhatsApp group is saying this morning as they fly <laughs> off to, to international duty, right? Or do are they, you know, it's Harry texting Daniel saying, look, the boys aren't happy, you know, or Hugo Lloris texting Daniel Levy saying they're not happy with this, look, look, we'll, we'll see it through to the end of the season, but please don't extend this this contract. Which group of, what, like, what kind of players are they? What kind of people are they? You know, they've been basically professionally questioned by the manager, whether you like him or not. You know, you're still a Tottenham player. Your contract's going to be going beyond the end of the season. Are you going to come back and react for the fans? You, who are you doing it for? Like, ultimately, you know, the manager clearly wants you to do it for him. You haven't got that relationship. You need to come out, try and get in the top four by running through brick walls. And at the moment, I don't think what he said at the weekend gives him that motivation. If he had years left on his contract, 
you're saying, look, this is the manager. The club wants him in charge for the long term. Whatever he says goes. I've got to do what he says. And maybe I go out and say, look, you know, he's right. It doesn't matter if I agree with it or not. He has to be right because he's the manager. And if I want to play, I've got to do what he says. They aren't in that position at this point in time. Like, it's just a, you know, it's basically the long goodbye. It feels like it anyway. Yeah. That's why ultimately it's kind of pointless. And that's why he's kind of... You know, he's got nothing to lose now. As I say, he, he does, I don't think he wants to be sacked, but he, he wouldn't care if he was. And I think there's no chance of him staying beyond the summer. So, Do you think he'll be there for the next game? I mean, if I was... Uh, all I'll say, if I, if I was Tottenham, I would keep him in charge. Because, you know, the people keep talking about putting, you know, Ryan Mason in charge until the end of the season. That's just a step back. You might as well have someone who's at least going to light a fire underneath the players and and has a track record of get, of getting them into the top floor last season. St- Tom's right; they've got a point more than they had at this point last season. Like it's weird; it's a, such a weird situation at Spurs. And I know that the picture's slightly different around them now, uh, with you know Newcastle having two games in hand and whatnot. But they've still got a good chance. They've still got a chance. And I would I would rather have. We're going to come come on to talk about uh, Patrick Vieira leaving. I would rather have the man in situ who can light a fire under them and get them to the top four than some kind of airy-fairy hope that Ryan Mason might be able to be really pally with them and, and do so. Would you keep Conte in charge? Yeah, I'd agree with Gregor. And it was interesting talking to Tom earlier. You know, he made the point that, you know, the Tottenham board, particularly Daniel Levy, they want to um, think more carefully about the future. They've had some, you know, interesting uh, decision-making processes with previous managers and appointments. As Gregor says, there's no way this goes beyond the summer. Um, so keeping him and maybe getting fourth place allows them to then build and start thinking, right, who are we going after next? And I mean, the, the fixtures, you you make a good point, Hugh, about the international break. And it's funny, I was listening to you thinking, maybe actually for once, we always think, don't we, as particularly as journalists, international break means change a manager. That's what's going to happen. That's what always happens. But actually, maybe time away, Conte, I'm sure, might go to Italy for a bit of a break. They come back, they've got Everton, Brighton and Bournemouth, you know, due respect to all those sides, particularly Brighton, that's a very tough game. But, you know, that's a big three games because the three after that are Newcastle, Man United and Liverpool. So in terms of that top four mm. battle, if they can come back and kind of regroup and, as Gregor says, some of the things that Conte says lights the fire, then those three games become huge for them before a tough three against top four rivals. It was a three-all draw which kind of sparked uh, the anger in Antonio Conte Really, 77 minutes on the clock. Uh, you've you got a two-goal lead. You, you can't draw with Southampton. You've got to win that game. But um, watching the analysis, and we can bring it back onto the podcast, watching the analysis on Match of the Day. Mm-hmm. Do we miss that? <laughs> um, you know, it was interesting that they highlighted what had happened when Tottenham were 3-1 up, which is that they went very defensive, 5-4-1. Um, and there's part of me that's, that thinks, well, I don't really see much wrong with that. You're Absolutely, trying to see yeah. the game out. And they kind of spoke about it as if it was a massive criticism of Antonio Conte. Like, why would you stop doing what you're doing? Well, because there's 13 minutes left and we've got a two-goal lead. So let's just see the game out. S- certainly, you don't expect Southampton to start dominating a Tottenham side who's got a two-goal lead and they're in a defensive formation. It's a defensive manager, if you like, but ultimately he's got the result in his hand, in his grasp. All he's got to do is see out the rest of the game. And um, I didn't see anything wrong with that. But what I did see when they were running that analysis was a lack of intensity in the 5-4-1. People were just jogging around like, yes, they were in shape. But actually, it wasn't like a 
a real tenacity to close the, the ball down from those Tottenham players. I think it was a complacency of, we've got the two-goal lead, we're in the 5-4-1. As long as we do our, our run-in, we stay in shape, they're not going to score, they're not good enough. I think they took Southampton for granted. That was the issue. And that is what I think Antonio Conte was pointing to. You're coming in here, you're asking me about the penalty decision. Why aren't you talking to me about the fact that my players for the last 15 minutes were either complacent or lazy? I mean, I don't know what was going on, but I'm sorry. You know, if they'd have gone out 5-4-1 and played the whole game like that, I'd expect them to get a nil-nil. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't expect them to be conceding two goals in 13 minutes against Southampton playing in a 5-4-1. I mean... Whether it was 0-0 or 3-1 at the time. Come on, like, come on. I would say all bets are off when any team plays this current Southampton team under Ruben Sellers because it looks like they're the most unpredictable team to... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I jest, I jest, I jest. But you can always tell when I'm, I've been in the editing chair on a Sunday because I cite Tony Cascarino at length and I'm going to do it again. <laughs> um, in his column this morning, he talked about managers who make kind of those defensive substitutions that you're talking about and whilst you guys obviously seemingly kind of saying no it's the right decision kill the game he made the point that it does it well it firstly suggests we're going to sit off we don't this is killing the game which in turn invites the opposition on and says okay come and have a go now we're going to sit here try and break us down mm. which and he was citing it in, in reference to Chelsea with taking Jao Felix off and conceding a late goal against Everton but it kind of applies with Tottenham as well in that sense of, you know, the superior team should be holding on. You make that change and you say to the opposition, you kind of, you, it's like handing, literally handing them the ball and going, right, you've got 10 minutes, lads. See what you can do. So I think that's an interesting point to make. I mean, I, it, it's, a, it's a strange one because I, I do think Southampton deserves some credit as well. Like I, I think when you look at some of their performances, I think they've lost two two of six league games, beaten Chelsea, beaten Leicester, drawn with Man United and Tottenham. I know they had a bit of luck along the way um, in terms of playing against ten men for quite a while against Manchester United, but they deserve some credit in this in this as well for coming back. But I do think there's a point that Cascarino makes quite well in terms of handing over the ascendancy, saying, making those changes and going, okay, come on. I mean, you must you must have played yeah, in countless yeah, games like changes, those changes. It changes the dynamic. You go right, the gaffer's going, oh, okay. We're, we're sitting in. We're sitting in here for ten minutes. But but like, the counterpoint to that is that it's okay to do that when you've got a two goal advantage and you know you're trying to hold on to the lead. And some of the overloads that Southampton got down the down the flanks in particular, it was just as you say, players were not closing down or they were getting dragged out of position. And uh, like Longley continues to kind of give us more and more evidence that he's not the answer in that mm. position. Um, and they were kind of getting stretched in midfield as well, so it's not. It wasn't even, as you're saying, it just wasn't done well. There's nothing, nothing wrong with, with with holding on to a two goal advantage like that. But you, you also have to say that they got the equaliser through a penalty, which was kind of quite a marginal. It goal. wasn't a penalty, was it? I mean, there was very little contact, if any. And <sighs> although it was like a clumsy swing at swing at the ball, um, that, that was the that was the it was fine margins. So wouldn't we? There's a, there's a little bit of contact, but again, I'll go back to the phrase that I use a lot, which is you used to have to foul, actually foul people. And that is, a, it's one of those where it's contact on a player, but he hasn't, he hasn't, he hasn't actually fouled Maitland-Niles, has he? There's a little bit of contact. No. But you wouldn't say he's, he's gone through the player or he's no. caused him to lose his footing or anything like that. And if Maitland-Niles, 
I mean, look, you're going to go down. You need a penalty. You're in a, you know, the predicament that you're in in the league. I, I, you know, players are going to do that, and obviously there's there is a good opportunity to go down. My criticism is not of really the incident; it's of the referee for calling that as a penalty, and then going to the screen and still thinking it's a penalty. Cause it, it, it's it's well, it's soft, isn't it? There's a it's lot of that. Soft. There's a lot of that at the moment. I think a lot of people listening will say, "Well, we've seen a lot of those given, and we have, and that's my issue. We've seen a lot of soft decisions." Yeah, it was very soft, but like that, as I'm saying, that's the that was the difference in the end. It could have, it could quite easily have been different, and you wonder what. <laughs> Conte's reaction. That's the other thing. I think it's slightly disproportionate. Let's like, to be honest. I know they've given up, given up a two goal lead, but it it wasn't losing four nil at Southampton. Uh, yeah, it yeah. Wasn't. I mean, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't catastrophic. We've seen worse performances by Spurs this season as well. We didn't see that after the AC Milan game. So, mm. um, but anyway, it's going to be interesting to see what what happens at Spurs now and what happens in the longer term because. It, ultimately, he was telling a lot of home truths, and and those will still be the case whether Conte's a manager or not. Yeah, I think the squad's not good enough as well. I think the club need to look at themselves. But I've said it before on the podcast, if not, I've said it on the radio, that Tottenham to me is a club that needs a total reset in terms of identity, who we want to be as a football club, in terms of what the academy is there for. You built this brilliant training ground. Surely you want it to produce some players. The style football has to go from top to bottom at that football club, which means you, you bring in managers that suit that. I think Tottenham fans are used to that historically, playing football, you know, seeing sides that entertain, whether they win stuff or not. Um, and that's kind of the starting point, you know, high quality technical players and, and ultimately a style of football that is progressive, expansive, whatever you want to call it, attacking style of play. Um I just think they need that identity. And at the moment, Tottenham don't know who they are. The squad is a mishmash of players, many of whom I don't think should be playing at a club that purports to be in the Champions League um, or wants to be a top four side regularly. So they need to address all of those things very, very quickly moving forward. And I think it might start in the summer with a new manager. Antonio Conte, thank you very much for another fantastic rant. Gave us lots to talk about. Um, let's move on. Because I think the point for Southampton was a big one in terms of um, the bottom of the table. And I think we need to continue to talk about a very tight, packed bottom of the table, which, um, again, it, it, it's crazy. One win and suddenly you're looking at it as a very different picture for certain teams at the bottom of the table. But I do want to talk about Crystal Palace. It's more about the manager once again than it is about the football, I apologise. But obviously, Crystal Palace, since we've last spoken, have sacked Patrick Vieira. That was after a 12-match winless run. They haven't won a match in 2023. Uh, beaten 1-0 by Brighton, that was Vieira's last game. That was their third defeat in a row. It's now four in a row. Paddy McCarthy took charge of the 4-1 defeat at Arsenal this weekend. Palace stayed 12th. Uh, they're only three points above 18th-placed West Ham who have two games in hand on them. Um, but before we get to the game at the Emirates, which was a great one for Arsenal, uh, poor one, I think, for Crystal Palace. I was going to ask the question, but I might as well go in on my opinion. I think this is a rash decision. I think the dismissal of Patrick Vieira is one of the harshest I've seen. And Palace fans will say, we were atrocious. We had those three games where we didn't even have a shot on target. We were absolutely awful. And we were, you know, only three points above the relegation zone when he was sacked. And we haven't won a game in 2023. You know, all signs point towards 
we needed a change. Um, but as Vincent Company so eloquently argued uh, in his pre-match press conference, I think on Friday, about Patrick Vieira, when you look at the games and the situation that Crystal Palace have been in, I think it's incredibly harsh. They're running 2023 in terms of fixtures. Okay, they lost 4-0 to Tottenham. Lost by a goal to Southampton, right? That was in the cup, I think. Yeah, lost by a goal to Southampton in the cup. Then lost by a goal to Chelsea, drew with Manchester United, drew with Newcastle, lost by a goal to Manchester United, drew with Brighton, drew with Brentford, drew with Liverpool, lost by a goal to Aston Villa, lost by a goal to Brighton. Sacked. And in those games where I'm saying they've lost by a goal, it's not like they've lost 4-3. They're not conceding a lot of goals. And bear in mind, everyone knows that before the end of the season, Palace have to play the bottom eight teams, all of the teams beneath them. So if Vieira stays in charge, they could have put together a run, possibly. And I know Palace fans will say, we weren't even having a shot on target, so why would we start beating all these teams at the bottom? I get it. Steve Parrish kind of argued the same thing in terms of uh, his statement when he said Vieira was leaving. But ultimately... I think there was a good chance here for Palace to have a strong end to the season. They weren't going to get relegated. I mean, I think they're now in, in more chance of being relegated that Vieira's gone, but to be perfectly honest. Links with Roy Hodgson, I'm stunned, to be perfectly honest, if he comes back until the end of the season, because if, they're, if their issue is scoring goals, I don't see how Roy Hodgson's your man. But anyway, he'll make themselves safe. They'll probably finish 12th. I think like, my, my mate that supports Palace immediately was like, yeah, he needed to go. And I said, if you finish the season 12, three points off the bottom three, how, you, how will you feel? That's all I said to him. And he was like, well, I, well yeah, obviously I'll take it, but only because I think we're going to get relegated. And I was like, are you being sure that it's that case? Because yes, last season you were 12 and you loved it. So I, I, I just don't get it. Anyway, yeah. as you can tell, I just don't get it. <laughs> the, 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 goals, the goals point is an interesting one. Firstly, I'll say uh, that I agree with you. It definitely smacked of a rash decision and it surprised me when, it, when the news broke. Um, I think the goals and the shots on target point that has been a discussion for the last few weeks definitely didn't help his case because the whole point of Vieira's time in charge of Palace, the conversation around it was that he'd taken them on from Roy Hodgson. You know, you said Roy Hodgson did a brilliant job, made them very solid, gave them foundations and they didn't get relegated, made them a Premier League club for a good couple of seasons. The idea was that Vieira, with these young, exciting players, Michael Elise, Eze, all... You know, those kind of players, he was supposed to be taking them on, wasn't he? He was supposed to be lifting them. And then they have that run where all the stats start coming out. They've not had a shot on target. They've not scored a goal. You know, three games on the trot. James Gilbrandt wrote an excellent piece all about their problems when they lost 1-0 to Manchester City. Um, I, I don't think that helps the the kind of the the momentum, if you like, which is why I think then sometimes Palace fans like your pal say he had to go because that's where they've got to they've they've had a little stumbly run but also we're not scoring goals you know it's the biggest it's the biggest complaint any football fan can have um you know i to make a direct comparison i'm not mentioning them for a while my team lincoln city are currently basically in exactly the same position as palace we've went on an unbeaten run at home we lost for the first time at home mm. this weekend and we're like unbelievably good in defense for expected goals we're supposed to be bottom of the league and the fans are having the same conversation, like, get rid of him, get rid of our manager, Mark Kennedy, who because we can't score goals. But, like, the reality is, are we going to stay in League One? Probably, hopefully. Am I delighted by that? Yes. So you then have that same conversation, and that's where Palace fans are at now. 
I have a, um, a friend who's a Palace fan who was texted me at half time during uh, the game against Arsenal and said, "So turns out if you sack your manager and uh, play the youth, co- appoint the youth coach and play a young goalkeeper, it turns out you're absolutely crap. Who thought?" Um, so you know, there's not they're not they're not all they're not all on the side of kind of sacking him. I would say. Listen, that's a side point, but Whitworth in goal for Palace, it's not his fault. He's it's not, not his he's, fault. He's not ready. It's not he's his not fault. ready yet. But I saw the goal against Brighton. I think he could have done better with that. And I thought, oh, you've lost a game against Brighton where you've put in a, a young goalkeeper who's not experienced at this level because of injuries. And really, he could have done better. And Brighton are meant to be, you know, a fantastic side. And we're talking about could they get in the Champions League? It's only a goal to nil and that goal I think probably if your first choice keeper's playing isn't a goal and some of the some of the chances in both of those games I remember Zaha hitting one off the post and it came back off the goalkeeper and there was one that went right across the goal line mm-hmm. like they've had some <laughs> there's been a lot of that there's been a lot of kind of nearly moments for them I just think they, I, pa- look, they panicked I agree, basically I agree but you've got to say that anyone who goes for a, in the Premier League these days a dozen games without yeah, getting a win you've got a big big risk of I've not been the manager anymore, basically. So I, I would have stuck with them, but primarily for for the point that you made, eight teams in the last ten games are below them. I don't know how they're still twelfth as well. It's just bizarre. Like the the gap just keeps getting narrower, and Palace don't drop yeah. <laughs> between the clubs. So um, because it's a tough run that they've been on. They've only got Fulham. The they've got Fulham and Spurs. They're the only two teams that aren't below them. Yeah. So like, yeah, you've they've had a tough run, and it's been very fine margins, both in both in terms of the goals they've conceded. And you know, as I said, a lot of nearly moments uh, at the other end. You don't know about relationships and things behind the scene. I know, mm-hmm. like he dismissed Sean Derry not yeah. so long ago, who's like a bit of a stalwart there. Um, I, I guess as I say, that's the kind of thing that's that's the only thing that you you can't really know. Um, but I would have stuck with him absolutely because they've also been cutting the wage bill since he's been in charge. Part of that was like the the kind of major overhaul in his first summer in terms of moving on a lot of uh, high earning old players mm. who've been there a long time and replacing them with younger ones and loans like Conor Gallagher I, that's an, another huge hole in the team that's mm. like the, the piece that James Gearbrand wrote that Tom was uh, referencing spoke about how how they're starting a lot deeper essentially whenever mm. they whenever they start attacks and a lot of that is to do with Conor Gallagher he was the player Winning who kind of won the ball higher up the pitch yeah. he was like a little terrier and players reacted off around that and Eze has not been the answer to, the, to that you know that hole in the team um, Olise is still a bit of an enigma Zaha has been injured with a ha- hamstring injury there been mitigating circumstances Mateta as well Edward, yeah, right. that's, a, that's a difficult thing for any club to address in terms of bringing in a centre forward who can actually score you goals and that's been a long while that they haven't had one at Palace you know yeah. uh, Jordan Ayew's there as well but again these guys are just inconsistent goal scorers I mean Mateta I don't even know if he scored this season Edward's got about five um, you know if they have a proven goal scorer or at least a decent goal scorer at this level up front of course that would have taken a bit of investment from the club then they're probably in a different situation which makes me wonder what the expectation is at Crystal Palace because well, there's also seems to be conflict there because of various investors. You know, they've got American investment in the club, and but Steve Parrish is still the man who's in control. Mm. And I think there has been some conflict about the direction of the club and even how much has been invested in in players or not. Mm. Uh, so there is that going on in the background too. And I think Steve Parrish just ultimately feels that as the man in charge, he's got to make sure that Palace 
maintain their Premier League status and he thinks this is the way to this is the way to guarantee it or to to improve their chances of being a Premier League club Premier League club next year so because the, the point is about the eight mm-hmm. games as well is there, there's the potential for huge swings like we're talking about it's all staying very much the same and yeah. not, not many points between them but in the next few weeks that could change because you know you lose to a couple of them and all mm-hmm. of a sudden it's a big change so it, it was a gamble and only time will tell whether it pays off or not I the, the Roy Hodgson point for me that's just lunacy so who comes in and is it an interim till the end of the season should they be looking at a new permanent boss they've been linked with Ralph Hasenhutl they've been linked with Jesse Mars well they've been linked with anyone who's available to be perfectly honest which again I'm kind of sitting here like I hope they had a plan when they sat Patrick Vieira we've seen a few of those so far this season in the Premier League sackings with no immediate replacement where you kind of say if you're going to make such a big decision surely you know who's coming through the door and they don't seem to yeah you're right and we referenced it with Antonio Conte as well and you talk about a plan Gregor referenced the kind of model of uh, less wages younger players you know that again fits with picking a manager who can do that as well that's very much the modern thing in football it's very rare which is why as you say Hugh we see so often these managerial changes mid-season where it's almost like a little swap shop where you just kind of go in and go well he's just been sacked let's see if we can get him in for a little quick bump in form towards the end of the season because if you're a Palace fan you might be thinking oh I hope we're looking at Vincent Company. I hope we're looking at Michael Carrick. I hope we're looking at some of these young managers in the Championship, maybe who are exciting and doing brilliant things. But but not now. But not now, exactly. So you might have gone end of the season and then change it. But that's that's where I find it fascinating sacking managers. And we were talking about it before we started recording about teams like Leicester sticking with Brendan Rodgers, West Ham sticking with David Moyes because they're like, well, are we better off without them? Probably not. And it's maybe a similar thing with Tottenham and Conte. So uh, were Palace better off with keeping Patrick Vieira? Yes, probably, if, if the next option is Roy Hodgson in interim charge, because I don't really see I, I don't really see Palace fans getting excited by any of the names that we've mentioned, and if unless it was going to be a Carrick or a company-type type appointment, which it won't be at this stage in the season. I asked Carrick, says no. So we know. They enjoyed here. that question. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, that was a dolly. If you saw it at the weekend, the EFL show, I interviewed Michael Carrick after their their win over Preston, and um, I, I had to just you know throw it out there. I was like, just to confirm, there's been no communication with the Crystal Palace. Is that right? Like, literally answered the question for him. So he'll probably be the new Palace manager by the time they play again. You didn't check whether he'd been linked with the Tottenham job as well, because I reckon he might have had a different answer if you asked him that one. I didn't ask him. <laughs> I'll ask his agent he's a little bit later. He's been asked about West Ham as well. Yeah. I think he's going to be the, the man in the frame for a few jobs in the yeah, summer. Yeah, yeah. you just don't want... Um, I think for Middlesbrough season, you don't want to deflect too much away from the great football they're playing at the moment. Uh, anyway, back to Crystal Palace and their game this weekend. It was Paddy uh, McCarthy in the dugout um, and a 4-1 defeat at Arsenal, who are purring once again. So need to reflect on Arsenal a little bit as well. Routine win for them. Eight-point lead at the moment, although Manchester City have a game in hand. But I think the most important thing about this was, firstly, they played on Thursday night and they looked fresh as a daisy on Sunday. And they responded really well, didn't seem to have any negative effects. Their Europa League exit to Sporting Lisbon as well. Six league wins in a row since they were beaten by Manchester City in the Premier League. That was meant to be the game that turned the tide. So, really, I'm asking about the strength of that response from Arsenal and how key it can be in terms of their end of the season. 
absolutely huge. It's been so, so impressive. There's two factors you mentioned there, Hugh. You said fresh as a daisy. We've talked about their intensity so often this season. Uh, I speculated around the time of that Manchester City game whether that would be a problem going forward. Could they keep that fitness and intensity going? And as you say, to play an extra time and penalties game in the Europa League and then come out and look like that. Look, look so comfortable and you know composed. And yes, fine, they're playing a poor Palace side. Uh, who were struggling at the minute, but they did it the week before against Fulham as well. They looked, you know, got got ahead, got in front, so clinical. And I think having that intensity, they've obviously got players back as well, which is huge. They've got Gabriel, Gabriel Jesus, who we all thought, oh my God, they can't do it without him. Now he's sat on the bench because they've got Trossard pulling the strings up front. So that that's hugely significant. As you say, the response to the Manchester City um, defeat says a lot about what Mikel Arteta's managed to kind of bring bring to this group of players and we said it on the podcast we said that we didn't think that game was the six pointer they've got to win they can't lose to City type thing and uh, you know I'm pleased that we've been proved right because uh, it, it, it bodes well for the rest of the season because I think Manchester City will keep coming of course and Arsenal might drop points again but what that run shows is that they could lose again and they'll be alright they'll still with it, stick with it to the end of the season yeah, the games just keep ticking by and like becoming harder and harder to see them throwing us away now. Mm. Uh, now they're at the Europa League, is that absolute, a bonus? Well, like they wouldn't have seen it that way after a a bit of a thriller actually on Thursday night. Um, but probably, ultimately, it will be. Um, and again, it's like so often we've said when Arsenal have been burning, it's about Saka and Martinelli and the wings have just been absolute game, cha- game changers mm. for them this season. And... Again, another thing that Zinchenko again, like I keep speaking about him every week, but this pass that he just keeps playing inside to to Jaka, Jaka goes almost into a number ten role. He steps into midfield and he dummies to play it out wide and cuts it straight down. It's like a pass between the lines into Jaka. That's where Jaka scored his goal from. It's like a, it's clearly like a choreographed move mm-hmm. that they're doing, mm-hmm. and it's like no one's finding an answer. That's where. Arsenal, uh, James, James Gilbrand referenced this in his piece today. They just they caused havoc between the fullback and the centre half of Palace, mm. and like just co- constantly getting in, threatening, threatening wide or getting into the space between those two players. And like when you've got Martinelli and Saka on song, then they're you know a match for anyone. I mean, that is where they're incredibly Manchester City like or Pep Guardiola like, if you like those. You said choreographed, but those planned, moved, trained moves, that um, rotations, if you like. You know, obviously we see footballers being right. You, you give the players the general tactics, they go, go out there and then they kind of play it as they see it most of the time. Unless, you know, we see a lot of stuff off set pieces, but generally in open play, you know, it'd been maybe Manchester City, a lot of stuff triggered off the goalkeeper, for example, in terms of, you know, pre-planned passes that used to set them away off, off of counter-attacks. That's why they wanted a goalkeeper who could pass the ball so much. You look at Arsenal now and you think, this is, you know, a lot of it is just genius. You just want to watch their games to see things that you haven't seen before. Oh, did you notice that? Did you notice that? You know, they're a great side to watch at the moment, to be perfectly honest. And I still think, I, I thought it for a long time, you know, we spoke about it on the podcast, but I found it really weird when they were playing so well and they hadn't even been beaten in the first 14 or 15 games that the whole country was like, don't worry, Man City will turn it around. It was, it was very, very I'm weird. Still not, I'm still not letting go of that. <laughs> Let it go, mate. I've got Let to stick to on brand for the rest of the season, absolutely. <laughs> no, but I think, I'm still not sure. I think, firstly, I think a lot of Arsenal fans 
only still just getting to the we can't, can we? They're still there, I think. There's still a lot of surely not, we're not going to, are we? You know, 10 games is a lot of games, obviously. Yeah. A, a lot can happen, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I think there's still that expectation. I think the, there's still that suspicion. But, but, mm. the, but the more that Arsenal keep doing things, like, like yesterday, no Saliba, Rob Holding, much maligned, much kind of criticised during the early times under Mikel Arteta. We need better defence. Look, pretty colossal like winning headers fine not against mm. the strongest opposition but still you still have to come in and perform I thought Ben White after a kind of tricky couple of games and weeks yeah. of late he was excellent he thought I thought he was brilliant going forward particularly offers something completely different to Zinchenko on the other side but more of his kind of traditional overlapping right back I thought he was superb so the more these kind of things come across as well as as you say Hugh watching them going wow god my god they play brilliant football is you also watch them from this kind of analytical point of view of you're waiting for them to slip, you're waiting for something to drop, and then you know Rob Holding comes in and looks brilliant. So and you're kind of just impressed, almost in awe of just going, "Wow, this is amazing to have done this with this group of players." But they've still got to go to Anfield, still got to go to the Etihad. Here he comes. They've still got to go to St James's Park. Like if what if but Manchester City aren't that good? It's not necessarily. I'm not saying that they won't lose all of those matches, but a Man City good enough to win the league. At this point in time, I don't see it. They will drop as many points as Arsenal do because they're not good enough. I don't see Manchester City as great as they are and they've scored, I don't know how many goals they've scored in the last week, 25 and three if, games or whatever. But ultimately... But if one of those one of those games that Arsenal drop the points in is against Man City and that's a win for City, then the margins become so much slimmer. It's it's only, you know, you're down to two points if they win their game in hand. So, so, like, so you're saying City are going to win the league? Come on. As I say, it's becoming harder and harder to stay <laughs> stick with that with that viewpoint. But I, I'm not I'm not ready to say that this is Arsenal's title at all because, as I say, they are some big games and they've never never been here before. Mm. And City always come up with something. I think one of the reasons that the Arsenal fans, you're right, that the tide's just about turning, is because they've been enjoying the season so far. It's a bit like I was saying about Man United and people talking about them being in a title race. It's been so long since Arsenal have been able to enjoy their football, enjoy going to the games, enjoy the positivity, you know, just all be together and united and harmonious. You know, they know that heartbreak might come at the end of the season, but they're just, they're just trying to put it off for as long as possible until it's a reality. And then, of course, hoping that it's, you know, the best possible finish. So just just let them enjoy themselves, all right? They deserve it. They've been putting up with a lot over the last, bloody hell, what, five or six years? So, you know, let them enjoy it. Uh, anyway, defeat for Palace at the bottom of the table. Um, elsewhere towards the bottom of the table, Leeds United get a massive win against another relegation-threatened side. Wolves, it finished 4-2 at Molyneux. So Leeds climb out of the relegation zone. Basically, they're four places and two points above the bottom three. That is great for them. The main thing to take from this game, though, a second away win in the league this season. One of those games where the intensity clicked and finally Leeds United took their early chances, which they've had so many of and not taken. Yeah, it was still mad, wasn't it? We keep, <laughs> we always reference it. They just can't help themselves. It's absolutely bonkers, aided by the kind of teeming rain it really felt like a bit of an old school Premier League uh, classic it, yeah look it, it's huge psychologically isn't it to get those goals to get those wins and it does feel a little bit like it leads for me now with Gracia who I think is a good coach at that, particularly at this level I think they now have the ingredients to stay up whereas I think before it looked 
the madness looked a little bit scattered and haphazard under Jesse Marsh, but I think Grassy has got a little bit of its controlled madness, if you like, and I think they'll they now look in a good place to to stay up. And Rodrigo coming off the bench as well to mm. score as well. That's that's huge for them. As you say, like I've spoken so many times about how teams are struggling for goals and Leeds suddenly look like they've got a, a bit of potency, if particularly if Nonto's on song. Um, Somerville is ready to come on. Harrison's obviously had a really good couple of weeks. Mm. Um, and Bamford's still fit at the moment. <laughs> so uh, certainly a lot more positive than it was a few weeks ago. But they were, they were aided by some... Um, Pretty wild uh, defending by Wolves and Johnny in particular, uh, who had a pretty wild afternoon. All said with with a absolute worldie of a goal yeah. uh, and a horrendous tackle on the keeling. Yeah. So and getting absolutely bodied for Rasmussen's goal. Yeah, no way he should be losing that. Under I know he thought it was a foul, but he was just too weak. Just yeah. got bullied off the ball. So. Uh, yeah, not a great afternoon for him, but he will be, I think, in the goals of season contenders, which I don't <laughs> think he was expected before the campaign started. Um, but yeah, I think it is big for Leeds United. I still kind of worry about their, if you like, everyone down there, their ability to lose games. Um, I think when they're on top and the positivity's there, like we saw against Wolves, they're a different beast. But if the game, particularly the start of the game, goes against them, I don't see them being the team, a bit like Southampton this weekend, that's going to fight back in matches much Leeds United I think that would be my, my main concern um, but it's been a positive couple of games if you like a draw against Brighton beating Wolves away from home they go to Arsenal next probably writing that one off if you're a Leeds fan and for me the thing that they need to capitalise on the three matches after that all at home Nottingham Forest first one up which will be a huge game almost swore Crystal Palace <laughs> Uh, next which again two massive games and then if you can win those two games and take the positivity into Liverpool at home in the third match of those three maybe you can shock them as well and that might be enough to stay up come the end of the season so I think they will earmark the run of three matches at home as being I think that the way that they can save their season and um, I'm intrigued to see how it goes I've been kind of pleased with what Javi Gracia has done he's kind of exactly what we expected from him and I think they're a little bit better on the ball and I think they do think about the forward pass straight forward pass direct forward pass a little bit more than they used to I think they were kind of wasting possession a lot because we've seen before throughout this season they're not the greatest in terms of putting together 10 or 15 passes but can they get the 5 or 6 incisive passes to break up the field and score goals and we saw that they did that I thought they controlled the game quite well so um, it was like a really positive result for Leeds United not a great afternoon for Wolves just very quickly on them Furious Julian Lopetegui with some of the decisions in this game. It made to look even angrier by the fact he was drenched um, and just looked miserable as heck. And refused to zip up his coat as well. Yeah. <laughs> he also he had two needed, coats on, I think. And he neither also was needed up. to push his hair back, didn't he, as well? He had like a little <laughs> dribble of a fringe coming yeah, down yeah. his forehead, which really didn't help the yeah. like slightly manic look in his eyes. Yeah, so it basically looked like a wet mop. But um, he was unhappy with the refereeing. And I just had to say, because there was a lot of bad refereeing, for posterity this weekend that the last goal Rodrigo's goal the Wolves fans um, Lopetegui I think Mateus Nunes got sent off for um, kind of arguing with the officials about that one as well um, Adama Torre was fouled little tug on the shirt should it have stood? <laughs> I think it's marginal I think he stopped wanting the foul he could have the ball was still in his orbit and he could have still had possession uh, but what was he fouled? Just about, <laughs> just about. But I really, I mean, I think it's a bit. You're also complaining about a, 
a, a challenge on uh, Semedo in the first half that he throws yeah, a penalty. No chance. No chance. No chance whatsoever. And when Johnny made a tackle like that, and I think they said they were going to appeal it. Like, no. What are you, sometimes the Wolves have been on the receiving end of some some tricky, some dodgy decisions, I think. But I don't think that this was uh, really anything that affected the outcome of the game. Everton get a point at Chelsea, no less, this weekend. Ellis Sims with his first Everton goal. Of course, he came out of the academy. He was on loan at Sunderland earlier on this season. Recalled in January and uh, gets a point for Everton, which could be vital come the end of the season. So a big point for Sean Dyche's side. Bit of a mood killer for Graham Potter at Chelsea after what's been happening of late. But it is three unbeaten for Everton. And, and maybe I can say that they're growing, getting better under Sean Dyche or not, because they were dominated for large parts. I've got to say, this is probably one of Chelsea's better performances, even despite the result of late. It depends what you mean by growing, because you know with Sean Dyche, he's going to set his teams up to not necessarily dominate a game. So they're going to be, uh, you know, the, the lesser team in terms of possession, shots on target. But but for Dyche, in terms of the standing and the confidence to set a team up like he did without a striker and then to bring on one of the only two strikers I think he's got in the squad um, who gets a goal. And I'm delighted for Ellis Sims as well because we we had a little bit in the um, the paper this morning and online about his kind of story this season. He was at Sunderland. Sunderland fans loved him. He'd scored goals, um, looked on really good form. He would have been at Blackpool previously and helped them get promoted from League One. So he'd been this kind of player that had gone on loan spells and been much adored by supporters. But then, you know, he came back and he kind of became a little bit representative of the struggles that they had both off the field in the transfer market and then on it in terms of scoring goals. So really pleased for him that he came off the bench and got Nick the Malate point. Elsewhere, Leicester hold Brentford's last game I want to talk about towards the bottom of the table. I know there were some interesting results elsewhere, but I think the main one here is I think Leicester fans feeling that the showing against Brentford, despite the fact it was a draw, and Brentford, of course, have been very good so far this season, for some people underlining why Brendan Rodgers isn't going to be the man for the club past the end of the season, maybe coming to the end of his tenure. Um, I think he's a very good coach, Brendan Rodgers. I don't think, at the moment, he has the squad to go out there and get big results, and I think that's what's holding him back. Leicester fans may have another view, though. What do you think? Um, like I'm broadly in agreement with you. I think they've had to deal with a... Uh, enormous injury list this season still somehow are having to rely on uh, Daniel Amarty at soon a half <laughs> uh, and you know they signed a left back in January he's now injured uh, Madison's been missing for long periods and we see we keep talking about how much of a you know how vital he is for the list and we saw it in for, uh, with his assist for, mm, for Barnes's goal great pass great pass yeah um, so uh, look it's been a really strange season for Leicester and they've had runs of form where it looked like they turned a corner and it was kind of the Leicester of old they were free scoring you know getting some wins and then they've just looked calamitous in other weeks and a lot of that has, has been to do with the, the, the players he's been able to put on the pitch so and Leicester have been you know clearly after the miracle of winning the Premier League having won the FA Cup they've got high expectations but I think uh, they were slightly too lofty if they're, you know, they were questioning the board and the leadership of the club, considering what's happened and how much they've transformed this club. And if they're questioning, they're thinking they can get a better manager than Brendan Rodgers. I think they probably need to reconsider. 
The injuries is a great point because they've been very unlucky with those and when it comes to signings as well, they've lost big, big players for quite a lot of money and not necessarily invested it again. I, I just think it's interesting thinking about Rodgers and I'm just looking at the table here. When you come back to your point and your understandable frustration with Crystal Palace, you, you've got Forrest, Leicester and West Ham all next to each other in the table of that kind of group at the bottom. You know, they're the only teams not to have changed manager. It'll be really interesting to see at the end of the season if they all, all three could survive, mm. not get relegated, what that might do to our perception of the whole change your manager for a boost type thing. Mm. If three of those clubs down the bottom go down and they're three who have changed managers and it's not worked, it's not done anything for them, um, that'll be really interesting to see because obviously, you know, you've got Southampton who've changed manager twice. Um, I almost kind of hope because I think it'd be really interesting that Moyes. Um, Steve Cooper and Brendan Rodgers are all there at the end of the mm. season giving a little wave around the pitch we've stayed up we've survived even if it probably means that in Moyes and Rodgers case it might be the end of their time at the club it's almost like a slightly more American sports style model of where you've got to the end of the season now it's all change everyone swaps maybe they should all just swap <laughs> Rod- Rodgers yeah why not Rodgers should go to West Ham at the end of the season uh, Moyes goes to Leicester have see what see what happens there. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, listen, we could have spoken, I think, just about every Premier League game this weekend. So apologies if we didn't mention your side, but it was a big weekend in the FA Cup. We've got to discuss that next, particularly events at Old Trafford. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you're subscribed. So hit the notification button as well, and you will not miss an episode. Um, we of course will be talking throughout the international break about all the big games. So make sure you don't miss an episode there. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Right. The FA Cup threw up, I've got to be honest, some great games, some great stories this weekend. Fulham were far the better side for 70 minutes leading Manchester United at Old Trafford 1-0 until a crazy few minutes. In fact, there were just 265 seconds between Willian's red card for handball on the line with the score 1-0 to Fulham and Manchester United being 2-1 up with Fulham down to nine men. That was after Alexandra Mitrovic was sent off for pushing referee Chris Kavanagh. Although it did start with a red card for the Fulham boss Marco Silva for seemingly trying to influence the official while at the VAR screen. It may well have been for dissent, we're not quite clear. But it was complete madness from Fulham and it handed the game to Manchester United, a game in which Fulham had performed so well. Yeah, I think we can all like agree that the scenes, and particularly what Mitrovic did, like he needs a, a lengthy ban. Mm. 
Um, what do we think about the penalty? The handball. handball. Yeah, it's handball. routine, isn't it? It is handball. So that's, what's, the, that's the point. What have they, the they, they got to complain about? Madness, Silva. Yeah. I thought Silva's press conference afterwards was pathetic as yeah. well. It's like we're, conspiratorial. Like, yeah. we're Fulham, we're not Manchester United. Like, there, there is some argument to that in, in like stretching back through history. If you're a, a club the size of Manchester United, they, they, <laughs> they all seem to get late goals. They always, like, mm. you know, referees feel the weight of history there. But yeah. not here. Not yeah. here, not in this circumstance at all. So Silva is is like he's one of the worst actually on the touchline for his kind of antics on a weekly basis. So I wouldn't be surprised if he says something he shouldn't have uh, to get sent off. And then Mitrovic like completely lost the head, and he simply can't do that. So he needs, I think, he needs to be punished pretty severely because we've had this, we had this conversation a few weeks back about Lamina running in the Wolves player, and we you and I found out we were agreeing about. Mm. You know, if people are thinking this was harsh, well, why was he sent off? Um, it's it's one of the worst spectacles in football. And Mitrovic, obviously, this is a different league. He's actually physically, uh, you know, touched the, the referee. Um, but I think this needs to be clamped down upon. And, like, I think one way of doing it would be to, to punish Mitrovic pretty harshly. And also punish Silver, I would say, because as I think Mitrovic understandably taking the headlines for what he did, which was pretty appalling... But I think Marco Silva does start it off. He sets the tone for it with those actions on the touchline. And I don't know whether either of you saw there was footage of him after he'd been sent off, like prowling around the tunnel. I don't know whether you saw it. There's on, on social media where he's got, and there's two Fulham coaches, one like at the front of the Old Trafford tunnel and one at the back. They're almost like his bodyguards, but they're also, it's almost like they're going, don't go anywhere near him. And he's just like pacing up and down, like completely lost the plot. And I think as much as. Hugh, you're right to pick out some of the decisions that um, have happened in the Premier League uh, across the weekend. I think Chris Kavanagh deserves a, hot, a lot of praise for kind of how he dealt with it. I thought it was brilliant to see him just go, nope, off, off, get off, off you go. And I think, you know, he took his time. He was looking at the decision, which Fulham would have wanted. Take some time, look at it, check it's definitely handball. But then to to have to deal with that was pretty pretty disgraceful. But I think he deserves praise for how he handled it. Um, and it was a bit Peter Walton's written um, on the website this morning about how it was a bit of a victory for referees kind of standing their ground um, and the message that it sends for you know yeah, grassroots I mean, football and things that you can't do this I think that, that, was, that, was, in, that was important yeah, they shouldn't have to absolutely but the fact that he did and just kind of and I thought it was good but it said a lot about Mitrovic's actions that a lot of players from both sides were kind of steaming in going mate what are you doing what are you doing walk away what, what on earth are you doing um, I think David De Gea was one of the first there, kind of pulling him away. So, I mean, absolutely meant crazy, crazy scenes. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, Marco Silva, uh, I think with the rhetoric around Chris Kavanagh, and I know Fulham fans will say he's had some bad games refereeing us this season and maybe some shocking decisions. But you know what? A lot of teams can say the same thing about a lot of referees. They're not perfect. <laughs> You know, to create the narrative around this, it's always this referee, whenever he refs us, there's always something, you know, and start talking about Chris Kavanagh afterwards, I thought was pretty petty from Marco Silva. Um, but I also thought that the lack of responsibility, lack of accountability for the situation, you know, when, when it was asked to him, I think in the press conference and in his TV interview, you know, do you think you could have behaved better? Do you think you, you, you started it? You know, your players reacted from what you were showing on the touchline in your red card and he was like no why don't we talk about the the, the penalty that we didn't get in the first yeah. half and, yes. it, was, yeah. and yeah. it was kind of like well you need to take some accountability here because you're probably going to miss 
a number of games on the touchline. Okay, it might be one, might be a few. Your best player is probably going to miss five games. Looking around yesterday at the other sort of recent, I say recent, there aren't that many episodes of people pushing the ref, but kind of across Europe in the last five years or so, you know, people that have just shoved the ref in a similar fashion have got five match bans. Mitrovic then actually steps in and tries to intimidate Chris yeah, Kavanagh after was, he gets the red. I thought that was actually worse. Which is, which is probably worse. That he showed exactly. So I can't really see him getting anything less than a five-match ban. Now, I know the Fulham fans, a lot of fans are screaming, oh, yeah, you're biased. Bruno Fernandes <laughs> pushed the, the line. Oh, and he, well, I've just watched it on the TV screen above us here. I, I remember the incident, but even having seen it again, it, it isn't in the same category. No. I know people will say, well, he, he gave the... Yeah, he did give the, the uh, assistant referee... A uh, small shove on the back. It wasn't even enough to knock the referee off balance. Mm. But also, he does it as he's running away from the official. So yeah, Mitrovic was turning him round, so he faced him, and then exactly, he could put his finger exactly. In his, yeah. And and ultimately, having read the rule straight afterwards, um, you know, in terms of intimidating a match official, that's written into the rules. And I think that is where Mitrovic is probably going to see himself get a hefty ban by comparison to what Bruno Fernandes did, because there was no real level of intimidation above what we usually see in terms of players interacting with the officials in the Fernandes incident compared to what Mitrovic did. I'm sorry to say it, but, you know, there's a clear interaction, a physical interaction to knock the referee back as he pushes him. And then after he's got the the red, you know, actually, if you watch the incident, Kavanagh steps back very, very, very quickly. Mm. Had Chris Kavanagh stood his ground... Mitrovic would have been right in his face, probably would have ended up, you know, with his forehead to forehead, which you don't want to see a player doing with with an official. You don't know where that's going to lead. Kavanagh did excellently in that situation. It's definitely a red card. It's definitely a red card for William. It's clearly a red card for Marco Silva. What are you doing, Fulham? Because the game was there. Even with 10 men, you've got a chance. I'd just say very quickly on the Fernandes thing, I agree with what you're saying in terms of the application of the laws and stuff. I think when it comes back to that making a stand for the for the greater good of the game it might have been good to see some kind of punishment for Fernandez because I think he is also a player who mm. doesn't necessarily conduct himself in the most professional and experienced kind of way yeah, in terms of setting thing, an I, example to both to his team and to fans no, but I, but and to young I, young but I do think if you're, if you're going to say he should have got a ban it should be any player for that same incident so if it's the most polite nicest footballer Top pro, no, who just I agree. Does things. I agree. I'm just if saying. You push the ref- I, I'm not saying that that Fernandez shouldn't have got banned. You know, if, if Fernandez got a three match ban for that, I wouldn't have complained. To be perfectly honest, I was. I'm not here saying that Fernandez should have got nothing and Mitrovic should get five games. I'm here saying if Fernandez got three games, I wouldn't have been complaining as a Manchester United fan. But Mitrovic is is probably going to be five games because there was just that little bit extra to it. And I know people will, will try and say that they're exactly the same thing. Watch the incidents; they clearly are not exactly the same thing but it means Man United go through by the way unbelievably because I was watching it saying oh, complacency once again Man United I think they're better than they are slagging them to high heaven and then they win the game 3-1 well as you as you would have seen Hugh you would have only had to look at their FA Cup record this season as Bill Edgar points out <laughs> Man United have won all their FA Cup games at home there's that luck again lucky Man United 3-1 so there you go you should have seen it coming if anything and Fulham should have seen it coming as well yeah okay well uh, it could possibly set up 
an all-Manchester derby for the final, although there's a couple of teams who are going to have something to say about that. What about Brighton and Sheffield United? <laughs> Sorry, exactly. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just saying what the people are going to be saying down the line. Exactly. Just getting it in. We're yeah. listening to you, yeah. listeners, don't worry. We Which are. brings me to Sheffield United, making it to the semis for the first time since 2014. I know it's like a championship side, so people kind of make out that it should be hundreds of years or whatever, you know, 20, 30 years, but... Uh, Sheffield United, quite familiar with this. 2014, not that long to wait since... Nigel last... Clough's time. Yeah, Nigel Clough's time. They're actually in division below at that point in yeah. time, a League One side. They were a great club team under Clough. Yeah. Exactly, they made it through to the semi-final. Uh, Manchester City loney, no less Tommy Doyle, scoring a cracking winner, 91st minute winner, as they beat fellow championship side Blackburn 3-2. Um, and it was a great winner. And, and really, we're trying to decipher, we need to look into the contract law now, to see if Manchester City's loanees can play in the semi-final against their parent club, which it w- I wouldn't put it past City, given the magnitude of their club and the quality of their squad, saying it's fine, they can play against us. I don't see them as being like that kind of petty team. No, so no, I no. doubt they put that clause in the contract. So it would be, it would be great to see James McAtee and Tommy Doyle playing against Manchester City at Wembley, showing us what they can do. Well, you say that, Hugh, we obviously have a similar mindset because when I was speaking to Ian Whittle, who was covering the game yesterday, um, it, he, you know, he'd written his piece all about uh, Tommy Doyle, who is the grandson um, of uh, Mike Doyle and Glyn Pardo, who mm. were part of the 1969 team that won the FA Cup for Manchester City. So we had this lovely tale of someone who's embedded in F- FA Cup folklore. And Ian was talking to me as he left the ground and he said, only thing that can go wrong now is that they draw City in the next round. But anyway, I'll give you a ring back if that happens. Anyway, <laughs> half an hour later, bloody typical. Can you believe it? Anyway, Ian Whittle, being a very hardworking journalist, I said to him, surely, I said like you, come on, this is a PR open goal for Man City. But he did put the question to them and he was checking, but apparently it is written into the contract. Oh, it's so standard, I think. It's a standard contract. It's nothing. It's not specific <laughs> to Man City. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not, not just him. To them. James McAtee as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's nothing they can... And there's actually... They looked at it and they said, look, there's nothing we can do Sad about it. Sad for those two Gutting, oh, yeah. kids, Gutting. you know, to yeah. play at Wembley against Manchester City. And, and look, for all we know, although they're Manchester City players at the moment, you know, at the end of the season, given how they've played so far this season, you'd see a lot of championship sides being interested in those two players. Yeah, so. definitely. I mean, probably interested in a lot of the players that were on the pitch yesterday. Again, referencing him again, but I was talking to Tony Cascarino and he said... You know, this match will probably be billed as a kind of blood and thunder championship 3-2, but the quality was absolutely exceptional. Some of the goals, I thought Ollie McBurney looked like a player who, you know, whilst he maybe didn't have the chance in the Premier League, thought, God, this guy's really, really good. Like, I think um, his goal was superb the way he kind of turned in a tight area, held off the defender, fires it low into the bottom corner. You know how I saw that goal, though? Come on. How is he scoring that? Blackburn Rovers, how are you letting him score that goal? Please. But I thought do, you know his, do you know his, his, uh, one of his coaches, Jack Lester, who I used to play with at Forest and Chesterfield, that was his calling card. He turned into the defender. And like he always would, just had the habit of the ricochets always came, fell at his feet and he threw and go. Spoken like a man who was annoyed in training absolutely, many, many times. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but he did it all the time. And I just watched that goal and I thought, that's kind of... That's exactly what his coach did for like his entire career. It was a great finish. Um, and there was a couple of great goals in this game. Um, and the winner especially, obviously, oh. was was fantastic. A fantastic goal. But um, in terms of what Paul Heckingbottom's done, I think, look, we were talking about managers earlier and, you know, what decision you make about your next manager. I do think Sheffield United have done brilliantly to see Paul Heckingbottom at the club 
take over in, a, in the interim role, given the job full-time, what he's done since. He's second in the league at the moment. He's heading towards automatic promotion. He's got you back to Wembley. I do see that as a bit of an inspired decision because there would have been a lot of pressure for a club like Sheffield United. No, but to be honest... I think they, deserve, add, I, I think they deserve no credit for it. <laughs> no credit whatsoever. Because he was brought to the club by Jack Lester as the under-23s coach. He got the interim job when Chris Wilder was sacked. Mm. Then they brought in Yukanovic, who was sacked, and they gave him the job because, he, as we now know, they have no money and he was a cheap option. And it, it was, it is inspired because it's a perfect fit. He's someone mm. who we know he did great work at Barnsley. He went, went to a bit, you know, he was went to Leeds when Radrizani had just bought the club and that was a mistake for everyone. Had a tough time at Hibs. But he's clearly a, a very talented coach and he's, it just felt like a good fit. He brought in Stuart McCall mm. and as I say, Jack Lester down. That's like, that's a good little trio. They've all got connections to the club. Um, and he's done, done a brilliant job. Mm. But we've seen there's been reports this week, you know, Henry Henry Winter interviewed him before the game and he said that, you know, they, they haven't paid the gas bill so they didn't they couldn't afford to, to put on their undersoil heating when it snowed at the mm. training ground. Mm. So, and there's a litany of things that have been going on behind the scenes there and that about the cuts and about, like, not having enough money to pay their Y scout bill so they can do the analysis of the opponents. Things there, like, there it's been a tough, tough reports, job for them. There are reports at the moment of a possible administration looming. We've seen obviously big reports about a possible takeover happening as well. And and the idea that they may go into administration may force that takeover to come early. But then, you know, we've what we know about the owners and directors testing the EFL, we don't know what hand the the club almost may be shuffled into because um if they're deducted points, given the closeness, and it might be 12-point deduction, which is automatic in the EFL, the, the moment you go into administration, that could obviously cost Sheffield United a place in the Premier League next year, which is worth a huge amount of money to whoever owns them next. I'd so be, they will, I'd be amazed if the club allowed that to happen. Like, cause well, well the money's got to come from somewhere. Well, the, the, the prospective new owner's already put in £10 million, pounds, so, and that's helped them get to this point. So if they're on the fringe of making the Premier League and all the money that'll come with that, I think a few more quid to to tide them over would be a good investment. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, all the all the, the whole point is against they deserve no credit for putting <laughs> Paul Hickenbottom in charge. Sorry for giving you credit. He Shepherd deserves United. enormous he deserves credit. credit. He yeah. deserves enormous credit for the job he's done. Yeah. And against the context of all that uh, stuff going on in the background. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. No problem. Uh, but, <laughs> but they do deserve the club great credit for reaching Wembley, the semi final, and it was a great. And by the way. Uh, credit to Blackburn as well for making this a great game too it was fantastic and a great advert for the EFL guys it's brilliant make sure you watch the highlights every Saturday night ITV4 moving to the Etihad Stadium next Erling Haaland scoring his second hat-trick in five days Manchester City hammering another EFL side the championship leaders Burnley 6-0 at the Etihad. Of course, this game was all about Vincent Company's return uh, to the club where he is a legend. But can someone answer me why Erling Haaland was playing in this match? What on earth is Erling Haaland doing? By the way, like I've got to be honest, had a little bet this weekend. Um, Johnson Clark Harris or Peterborough to score any time, tick. Julian Alvarez to score any time, tick. Harry Kane to score any time, tick. Lovely. But Erling Haaland starting in that game instead of Julian Alvarez had me thinking I wasn't going to make any money. I was, I was, I was livid. But you did. 
Just to clarify, you no, didn't. No, I, I didn't in no. the end, no. <laughs> you did or you didn't? No. I didn't, I didn't, okay. no. no. Well, so there, were, there were another couple of goal scorers. Uh, Carlton Morris at Luton was in that. Uh, you know, it was a silly hacker and he didn't score this yeah. weekend. So, so you I, just, I, I lost. Just to clarify, you lost. You yeah, didn't I win did the lose. bet. You I just listed lose. the ones who did score. Yeah, okay, just yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, Erling Haaland is playing because Pep Guardiola wants to win the FA Cup, as he said in his comments after the game. I mean, don't shake your head. Don't shake your head. Come on, he might not Julian be. Julian Alvarez. He might. He might have sacked off. He yeah. might have known he's not going to win the league. You know, this also, is. Also, this is an international break coming up. There's yeah. very little motivation. This is this is what was unlucky about Grimsby's <laughs> the timing for Grimsby going to Brighton. There was no motivation for any. You know, we've seen Southampton when they played Southampton the round before, and they made nine changes. I mean, a raft of changes. But now we've got a place at Wembley in sight, and an international break after this round of fixtures. Uh, so the motivation to change the was not there me. and uh, unfortunately for Burnley that meant they were on the end of a hiding some of the although I, for me the best moment was De Bruyne's pass for Alvarez for the goal it was like just delayed and delayed when most people would play it into his, into his path on the outside of the defender and just delayed for long enough to play it behind the defender mm. and give him a, a clean run at goal it was an absolutely exquisite pass um, and Haaland is just the man in the right place at the right time all the time again it is extraordinary. I mean, Bill Edgar uh, on online this morning has got an absolute litany of stats for Haaland, but one of them, 104 minutes at the Etihad and eight goals. That is absolutely mental. Absolutely mad. Unbelievable, really. Um, unfortunate for Burnley, who've had a great season, obviously. Uh, but yeah, levels and Manchester City cruise through. They'll play Sheffield United, as we mentioned already. Manchester United against Brighton will be fantastic because Brighton have been having a great season. 18-year-old Evan Ferguson scoring twice to send them through. It's just their third FA Cup semi-final, actually. Um, League 2 Grimsby, as you mentioned, their dream comes to an end. Finish 5-0 at the Amex. But we've got to talk about Evan Ferguson. 18 years old, um, going into the international fray with the Republic of Ireland, where I'm looking at it and I'm thinking he could make an impact in international football as well. Because what he's doing in the Premier League, for someone his age, is, is you know, it's fantastic. You know, an old school centre forward. Amazing. Yeah, but he's got a bit of everything. He's like, as you see, because of his, his physicality, he looks like an old school target man. And he has that. He can pin defenders and he can be the focal point. And you have to see in that team... It was really interesting, actually. I was at the game yesterday, and De Zerbe, you know, was clearly asked about him after the game, and he said, "He's got to be, you know, we're going to try and make him a complete player because he's got to be like a midfielder or like a number ten, and then like a number nine in the last twenty meters." And like, there's no team, probably outside Man City, where that's more true than this Brighton team because the kind of fluidity of movement behind them, and he's like the one focal point. But even for for his second goal. He kind of dropped in and Dennis Undav went in advance of him and he combined and then he burst through and scored. And he's finishing his first goal, the way he yeah. popped out of the sky and it pivoted, quick touch and finish. And the second one was just power and there's no doubt, like when you yeah. saw him running through, you're just so confident that he's just going to emphatically finish it. He's got, as I say, he can run in behind, stretch the defence, he can hold it up and he's got the kind of technique and, and the power and the composure in front of the goal. He's... Yeah, he's the star. Brighton to reach the final? I think they will, yeah. I think they will. Thanks. Sorry about that. I but I just coming not not dwelling on it too much, but I didn't think Manchester United looked very good against Fulham. That's why the the, the madness of what the sendings off because I thought Fulham were actually cruising to a semi-final. I think Brighton are one of the teams of the season. I think they actually look like they're getting better under Roberto De Zerbi. 
they've got players like not not just Ferguson but Mitoma, Estupian. I think they'll be so up for this. Like they can go into this game with absolutely nothing to lose. They can take the game to Manchester United, and I would I would say at this point. With with the other things that United have got going on in their season, thinking about the Champions League, I'd I'd back a Brighton win. It's the first time I'd seen them in the flesh for a little while, and some of the like the tactical sort of innovations and stuff. But Pascal Gross, we've seen him do this before, playing as a right back and stepping into midfield. But he stepped in to to be as a number ten, like so. When they on the rare occasion they didn't have the ball, he was back in the right back position, and then when they had the ball. Deserby said afterwards because he knew that Brimsey would have a back five he always wanted to have the overload so they had three number tens <laughs> three number tens Matoma and Solly March out in the wing and Ferguson up front so you know you think you play with a back five you're going to and a four in front of it you're going to try and keep them in front of you Brighton had seven attackers like facing up facing up against them basically and the as I say the movement and the interplay and uh, I look they were playing Grimsby League Two club who were valiant in their efforts but completely outplayed um, but they are a, a fascinating team to watch and they've undoubtedly taken a big step forward since mm. the Zerbys arrived Great weekend of football thoroughly enjoyed it talking points red cards the lot gentlemen thank you for being with me uh, Gregor Robertson Tom Clark and Tom Allner and to all of you for listening we're into the international break so we'll be with you on Thursday looking ahead to England what, what kind of team will we be under Gareth Southgate off the back of the World Cup we'll discuss that on Thursday make sure you pick up a paper by the way and read the game today loads of great stuff in there from who Tom Tony Cascarino He's yeah. got a few mentions. He's got yeah. a few mentions, yeah. Okay, and a lot more. So pick up a paper if you're passing a news agent today. If not, go online, download the Times app. You can read it all there. You can also subscribe to the game online. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you on Thursday. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.